beginnings in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And really it is an epic story. Last week we looked at the key transition uh, with Stephen as Stephen uh, was put on trial and then turned the tables around and really put the, the Jewish leadership on trial before God and pronounced prophetically, sadly, God's, God's rebuke towards that leadership. And, and his part in the story as the, the efforts of the gospel started to shift from Jerusalem, turning away in light of the rejection of the leadership and so forth, starting to turn in their efforts, efforts to and towards the Gentiles. That key aspect in the storyline. And then you heard some weeks ago from about chapter 8, Philip and his work as an evangelist, as he uh, really did some pioneering work with the gospel with Gentiles. And, and just God used him at this ordinary evangelist in some extraordinary ways. Later on, we're going to see the conversion of Cornelius and, and, the, and the importance of that in the storyline. As, as God does some amazing things to, to shift his people to not just bring the gospel to the Jews, and that is to, to continue to be an effort, but to, to be, bring the emphasis as well to the Gentiles, to turn the attention there. And, the, and it's, in a sense, in these chapters, chapters 7 through really chapters 13, God is turning the ship, in a sense, this large ship, towards the Gentiles. And that's what's happening in the storyline. And a very important aspect in this turning, in, in these developments, as God brings to the gospel not just to the Jews but to the Gentiles as well, is our story today from chapter 9 on the dramatic and even perplexing conversion of Saul. So as we prepare to look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, let's pray. Because we want to hear from God. We want to hear what He would teach us through this amazing story and what it means for our lives. So Lord, we, we ask You now to come and be with us as we hear Your Word, as we contemplate the conversion of Saul. Lord, as Your Holy Word is read and expounded, Lord, would You be with us? Would You speak to us? Lord, we hunger and thirst after You. We want to learn from You. We want to hear from You. We want to go from this place having worshipped You, Lord, being transformed by You, by Your truth. And so we ask you to be here. Holy Spirit, come and fill us and fill this place. Thank you for your blood and righteousness, Jesus Christ. We are accepted. We can come before the throne. And you want to work good in and through our lives as a result. We thank you. So do this, Lord. Be glorified. Be pleased as you work through the preaching of your word. Lord, how I need your help, but how faithful you are. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's look at verses 1 through 19 of chapter 9. It's picking up the story from chapter 7, a little bit of a, an interlude about Philip, and then it starts again, picking up from the beginning of chapter 8, actually, in chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And we'll stop there. Looking next week at the latter sections as well. What an amazing event this is, this conversion here. There's, there's so much in this passage, so, so much richness, so much, so much just amazing work of God, and amazing truths from the Lord. And, and probably hundreds and hundreds of messages could be preached from this passage and all be different, all be about different aspects of the truth that's in this passage. But there's really probably two main things in this passage that, that I want to talk about. Two main things I believe that Luke is getting at, two main things that ultimately God is getting at in this passage that we want to listen to. Nothing wrong with looking at subpoints as such, but... But we want to look today at the main points, two main points. First, I believe the first main point that God is getting at, Luke is getting at, is he's explaining the ministry of Paul. Remember who Luke is. Luke is Paul's teammate, his traveling companion. He's part of this apostolic church planting team that travels around planting churches. And he's been highly influenced by Paul. And in many ways, uh, he, the Acts of the Apostles are not only an explanation of how the Gospel went forward, through the apostles and through the church and the power of the Spirit, but it's a, an explanation of the ministry of Paul as that gospel started to go to the Gentiles. And Paul was involved with a very controversial ministry, a very controversial ministry at the time that Luke was a part of. He was involved in bringing the gospel to 
the Gentiles. And he was making statements along with others. He wasn't doing this by himself, but he was probably the chief proponent of this. He was making statements that people could be reconciled to God, could know God, could walk with God, could experience the promised salvation of Scripture without having to come under the law of Moses. And that was controversial because that's all they had known. That's how they understood the Scriptures at the time. And he was reaching out with this message to the despised Gentiles. And they were despised, by and large, by the Jewish people. not saying Scripture advocated that, but, but that's what was going on. They were despised. They were, de- they were despised by the Jewish people for a couple of reasons. One was that the Gentiles, by and large, pretty much, well, I don't want to say entirely, but by and large, had rejected God as their God. Had rejected God and His good and holy ways. And they had turned from Him. And as a result, their cultures were, were full of things that were wrong and evil. Horrible things. And they, as the Jews, were aware of these things. And so they despised the Gentiles in their way of ignoring God and going their own way. They also despised the Gentiles because the Gentiles had been had been means of great oppression towards the Jews over the years. Not only earlier on, in the early history of Israel, but in the exile, and then after that, the Romans and, and the Greeks and so forth had done terrible things to the Jewish people. And so they despised the, the Gentiles as such. And so the idea that these Gentiles could come to God and be part of the, the people of God and save was just, was just horrendous to them. That they could come without coming under the law of Moses. It was controversial. And Paul was an important part of this. And so Luke in the book of Acts is helping, to, helping us to understand how this came about. To understand how Paul would be doing what he's doing. To help us understand that. To, to see how ultimately God was the one who had done this thing. So that, that people would understand that. And so this conversion, the conversion of Paul, is a very important aspect of that, of understanding what was going on, how it came about, how God had done it. So we, one of the main points here is that we might understand the conversion of Paul or Saul. Paul's his Roman name, Saul his Jewish name. Understand his conversion and how that fits in in God's plan and bringing salvation to the Gentiles. Thank God for that. But also secondly, with that, and it goes right alongside that we might learn something about our conversion. This is a wonderful story of Paul's conversion, but it's also a template really for every Christian's conversion. And there are things for us to learn in here. And actually, Paul himself understood his conversion as, yes, unique, but also exemplary. So he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I think we have this to project, the same is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul recognized, contemplated, the wonder of his conversion and salvation, seeing himself as the foremost sinner, which I perhaps would say every believer should see as well, themselves, but also as an example of the mercy of God to all who have come to Christ. So we are to marvel at God's mercy on Saul, but also marvel at God's mercy to us. And to recognize this, this, this basic truth 
that God spectacularly turns our lives around for great good. God spectacularly turns our lives around for great good. That, that is probably one way to sum up this section of Scripture. So we'll look at, we'll look at the life of Saul. We're going to look at what happened. We're going to look at, uh, I think you have this in your notes, we're going to look at Saul corrupted and confused, confronted, converted, comforted, and commissioned. And sorry for those who only want three points These six or five points fit better with the passage. We're going to look at his conversion and consider these things, these different C's. Corrupted and confused first. We've met Saul. We've met him previously. And we see in chapter 9 at the beginning uh, him reintroduced, and he's still the same guy he was in chapter 8. It says, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He's breathing threats and murder. And he in Jerusalem had been going house to house and dragging men and women out of their homes and putting them in prison. And they were getting the death sentence, at least some of them. We don't know how many, but he was casting his vote for them to be put to death. He's doing that in Jerusalem. And in his zeal and in, in, his, in his breathing of threats and murder, he's extending his purge from Jerusalem to Damascus. He wants to go to Damascus. He wants to extinguish this whole movement. He wants to, to eliminate it. And so he's, he goes to Damascus. He, he extends it to there. And, and, and most likely, by the way, Paul and his companions had to walk to Damascus. They didn't tend to ride horses like we think. Uh, they would walk most places. They would have a donkey to carry the burdens, but they would walk. And it was a six days journey to Damascus. And so Paul, in his zeal, wanted to go to Damascus to, to get rid of all Christians from Damascus, to have them pulled from their houses in Damascus and taken to Jerusalem and put on trial. He's breathing murder and threats. And he was full of zeal and hatred. In Philippians 3, he talks about this, that his, his, his persecution was fueled by his zeal as a Pharisee. He was zealous for God. And it's actually interesting, as horrible as it is, that this persecution, the fact that he would drag people from their homes, that he would have them put to death, as horrible as that is, it's actually consistent with Paul's worldview. Because he was a Pharisee. And he was actually a very good Pharisee. He was a well-trained Pharisee. He probably was, we don't know for sure, but he was a student of Gamaliel. He was, Gamaliel was one of the chief rabbis of the time. And Paul was likely the the heir apparent to Gamaliel. So he was a guy who was going to have a major influence in, in Judaism as a Pharisee. He was zealous. And their understanding was that God, God had called His people under the Mosaic Covenant to be His people. And that you were there by birth, symbolized in circumcision, but you would maintain your righteousness before God and stay in the covenant through your obedience to God. So, so you had to be righteous. You had to practice the law to stay in the covenant belonging to God. And, they, and that they had as a nation to be careful, to be pure, because they understood their history. Had they not been exiled as a nation for disobeying the covenant, for disobeying God? And they came back from that exile with renewed zeal to, to guard the law, to make sure that they kept the law so that they wouldn't be exiled. And here was this sect that was saying, you don't have to keep the law. 
in that way. That's not how you're saved. You're saved through faith in this guy, Jesus, who himself was loose with the law, at least according to the Pharisees, was loose with the law. And more than that, he was not only loose with the law, but he, he proclaimed blasphemies that he was God. And, and, and we know that he was not the Messiah because he was crucified. And we know in the Scriptures that cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He was obviously cursed of God. So, so this movement, this movement that's growing in, in fame and, and influence, must be snuffed out for the sake of the purity of God's people and the purposes of God. And for the salvation of God. And Paul probably even thought that he was helping to usher in the final salvation and and preparing the way even perhaps for the Messiah to come back by keeping them pure and holy. So he was zealous in his ways. The only problem is that all this was Paul's thinking, not God's. This was all Paul's thinking. He had missed God's way. And he had established his own way. And he was seeking to establish and maintain his own righteousness. And the righteousness of his people by themselves, by their own actions. And they had turned away from God. And, and, and we know through Jesus' teaching that they actually missed the law. They were not keeping the law. He, Paul, had totally missed it. He was establishing his own righteousness. He was... He was a person corrupted by the sinful nature and confused about the nature of God. He was corrupted and confused and therefore, sooner or later, compelled to do things that are wrong. And in his case, things were very, very wrong. He was compelled to these dastardly deeds because he was corrupted and confused and missed the way of God. And it was zealous for his own way. And it's really uh, looking at the life of Saul and thinking about him a little bit and realizing this is a chief student of Gamaliel. This is one of the top students and, and a man that you would think would be full of virtue and goodness. And yet he was the chief enemy of the church because he was following his way, not God's way. And that should scare us. Because if this man could do such terrible things then certainly any human being in our corruption and confusion, apart from God's intervention, can do terrible things. God forbid we ever, anyone ever do anything like this. But that same corruption and confusion, apart from the intervention of God, is in us. And if we are really honest with ourselves, if we are really honest, and this is what we don't like to do, And it's always uncomfortable for me to talk about it, but if we're really honest with ourselves and we think about the thoughts that go through our minds, we think about the deep recesses of our desires and thoughts and and, and who we are, at times there are thoughts that go on back in those dark recesses that are awful things. And I know if we we said, hey, you know, for the rest of our time this morning we're going to have volunteers come up and I'm just going to ask you questions about your deepest thoughts and desires. And we're just going to probe that together before the congregation and we'll ask and we'll try to get to the bottom of of what was going on and, and, and have you just say, you know, first question, what's the worst thing you ever thought or did? Would any of us really want to volunteer that? I don't think so. The reality is, is that when we start to probe our own hearts, if we were to come out and be public with the things that we've said and done, the rest of the group would be shocked and disgusted. That, that's the honest truth. 
Now, I know that I say that and use those words. It's like we can be offended. But that's the reality. And Saul's life is before us as, yes, a unique life, but as a template for our own lives. That apart from God and His intervention, that we too are capable of horrible things. We too are confused and corrupted by our sin, walking in our own way and thinking we're doing really well in it. Saul thought he was doing well. He was doing God's will and he was doing the worst just about he could be doing. And that's us without Christ. Saul was corrupted and confused. But thank God there's more to the story. He was confronted. And I like how it's phrased here. He's, he's doing his thing. And it says, uh, chapter 9, verse 3, Now as he went on his way, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed. As Saul was on his way, Saul is on his path. He's doing his thing. He's on his way. He's carrying out his plan. He's following his heart. He's indulging his desires. He's doing it his way. Right along with Frank Sinatra, God comes in and confronts him in his way. Confronts him. And a voice is heard. A bright light flashes around him, brighter than the sun flashes around him, he falls to the ground, and he hears God say audibly to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? <laughs> and and that, that statement and question is just full. It's full of meaning for Saul. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting these Christian guys? Saul, Saul, what are you, you're going a little overboard here. Let's give them some room, you know, and let's do the Gamaliel thing. Well, if they are from God, they'll exist. He doesn't say that. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that statement just turns Saul's world upside down. Why are you persecuting me? These people are so joined to me that this is me you're persecuting. And he says, who who, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? I think he knows, but doesn't want to know. Who are you? Lord, he calls him, recognizing this is not a man. This is God appearing to me. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What a confrontation for Saul in that moment. What a confrontation. And, 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 and that is not what he wanted to hear, by the way, obviously, from this vision. That is just the opposite. And can you imagine for him at that point all that was going on? I mean, can you imagine that moment? I mean, not only the flash of light and, and, and all that, but the voice. And then what the voice says. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And, 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 uh, and I, I don't know, I can identify with Saul, I guess, because I think about that. You're, you're in that moment, and you've just realized that all, that all your plans and all your efforts, all your intentions are backwards. And, and you've, you've recognized at that moment that this is epic fail right now. This is epic fail. I'm experiencing epic fail right now. That's kind of a term that's used a little bit out there, epic fail. Just, just the completely doing like the worst thing you could do. Have you ever had a moment in your life like that where you've done something 
and you just and the, and I know for me it's just this feeling that comes over is like oh no I'm in trouble oh no all those plans I had you know for the rest of the day they're they're turned upside down I had an epic fail to some degree recently uh, some of you know you guys probably already know this I'm out uh, earlier in the summer cutting wood with my chainsaw which I've done for years and years and and uh, cutting a little tree down and apparently doing doing it unsafely and I cut the tree and then it kicks back or whatever I feel this pinch look down and and just recognize okay we got epic fail going on right now I've just cut myself with the chainsaw uh, thank God I was okay but but I just at that moment you know that just that moment right then it's like oh no what has happened I guess we're not gonna be able to go to the ice cream store today something that all my plans are changed I'm in trouble and I ended up being okay thank God getting I got stitched up but Saul was at that place confronted by God in his epic failure confronted by God recognizing that he was facing and moving in the entirely wrong direction and for Saul he was confronted and really for us if we are a believer in Jesus Christ, there's no way around that moment of confrontation. There's no way around that moment of confrontation. There's no way to, to Jesus Christ without being confronted. There's no comfortable way to come to Christ. I'm sorry, I wish I could make a comfortable way. I wish there was just a way that was just really easy and everyone could come to Christ and not get mad at me for saying things about sin and the cross and all that. But there is no comfortable way. We must be confronted. God confronts us because we go on our own way. And our own way is not the right way. Our own way, as good as it may seem, is not God's way. And it's an offense to God. It's wrong. And if left to ourselves, it will produce terrible, terrible things. And so in every believer's life, there must be a confrontation. Now, for some of us, it's a sudden, boom, confrontation, a moment where, like Saul, where, boom, oh, I've done it all wrong, and we repent. Others, it can be a dawning, a dawning realization that, you know what, I've been living epic fail, and I need change. For every believer, for everyone, there is this confrontation. When we, when we see God in His truth, and, and then we see ourselves in light of His truth and His ways, and our world gets turned upside down. It can happen many ways, but at the core for the believer, it comes through the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see Jesus, and we see ourselves in light of Jesus. And there's a couple things that go on in that confrontation. We, we see in, in, in timing, I'm not sure how it always works out, but, but the biggest thing really is we see Jesus and who He is. We see His truth. We see His goodness. We perhaps see His holiness, His power, His glory, His love, His kindness, patience, goodness, these different aspects of who He is and that He died for sins on the cross and rose again. And as we look at Jesus, we, we, we see Him, but we see ourselves. And there's a confrontation that goes on. I'm not Jesus. I'm a sinner. I'm living apart from Him. I'm living in rebellion against Him. There's a confrontation for us that is just as significant, perhaps not as dramatic, but just as significant and very much like Saul's confrontation with Jesus where his world gets turned upside down. To to be a believer is to have been confronted by Christ. And I would add to continue to to be confronted by Christ because He doesn't give up working on us. There's more work. But to be confronted. And if you are yet to be a believer, you, you must yield to this confrontation. And I would trust that he's even doing that right now, confronting you if he has not been doing it already.
confronting you. And we must yield to that. For that's what goes on in Saul's life. Not only is Saul con- confronted, but he is converted in that confrontation. He's converted. It, it says that uh, he has this encounter. He's struck blind. The men lead him into the city. He does not eat or drink for three days. He prays. Can you imagine that? Three days, three days not eating, but three days not drinking. That's, that's the most you can do humanly possible. He goes into the city. So he has been confronted, and there's something going on in his life. He, he's, he's wrestling with all that's been said, and he's going through this turmoil. And, and somewhere between those words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then his, his interaction with Ananias, or even earlier, Saul is converted. He's changed in his, his basic orientation. He's changed. And we know that he's changed because when Ananias says, Lord, this guy's a troublemaker and you want me to go pray, and God says, go, and I'm going to use him. And then Ananias goes and he calls him Brother Saul. So, so Saul is changed. He's converted somewhere there. He, his perspective is changed. And, I, and oh boy, I, I would, if, if only we could have put a tap into his brain in those moments, between he heard those words and then, then Ananias spoke to him. Can you imagine? This guy's a genius. He's, a, he's got the, the Old Testament memorized. He's thinking in terms of biblical theology as a, as a Pharisee. And now Jesus turns it all upside down. And he's probably just processing things. I mean, volumes and volumes of theological works are being written in his brain. You know, just coming out, uh, I think. I don't, we don't know. That's speculation. But I, I think that's what's going on. I would love to have had a tap because, uh, I mean, I wouldn't... I'm, I couldn't follow what he was thinking. But he's just, all this stuff is going on. And, he, and, and, and more importantly than the volumes of theological truth that maybe he's rumbling through is this basic change in his orientation. Saul is changed. He's converted. And conversion is really change. It's change. And, and, and in Christianity, conversion is changing your perspective from, from loving and preferring sin and self to loving and preferring God and His ways. It's a change. And that, that, change, uh, that, that, that change, that shift comes from, from, from putting our faith in God and in Jesus Christ. It's, it's a change in our orientation. Now, it doesn't mean we never sin again, but there's a different orientation towards sin. We, we no longer prefer sin and self. We prefer God and His glory. We've learned... To not see sin the same way. The, the, the truth or lie of sin, its worth and reward, no longer appeals to us in the same way. And we're still tempted, but it no longer appeals to us. We have changed in our orientation to believe the truth and the worth and reward of Christ. And we don't ever, for believers, see sin the same way again. You still struggle, you can still sin, but you don't see sin the same way again. There's a change and your faith is in Him. And, and faith and repentance go right with that. There, there are two sides to a coin. We, we see Christ and we believe that He is good. And we believe that He's died for our sins. And we believe it's worthwhile to follow Him. And therefore, since we believe that, and we believe that our sin is not worthwhile, it's not a good thing, we don't want to sin anymore, we repent. Because if you believe something, you do something. You turn in your attitude. So faith and repentance are two sides of a coin that must go together. There's no way to take them apart. If you believe, you say, this is good, that's not. Therefore, I repent. I follow the good. And we do that in different degrees, different ways. We grow in that. But, but there's this repentance is really, uh, in Scripture, means a change of mind. 
We change how we look at life. We change how we look at sin. And that's what went on in Paul. He was converted. All that stuff that he had valued before now was rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ as his Lord. All rubbish, as great as it was. And he was a great man in the world. It didn't compare. And I don't know if he thought through all that at that moment. I think he probably did. He recognized, all rubbish, I've been all wrong, but I don't care. I've got Christ. I want to live for him. It's not necessarily an easy transition. It's a momentous change in us. It means death. It means death. It means death to our old attitude, our old beliefs, our old behaviors, our old identity. It's death. And when we come to Christ, we're so united with Him that actually that old, all that old stuff is crucified with Christ. It's put on the cross where it belongs and condemned with Him. The old beliefs, the old attitudes, the old attitudes, the old identity is condemned with Christ. Put where it belonged. But as we are joined to Him, there's a new belief, new behaviors, new attitude, new identity that's far more glorious and lasting than the old. And there's new life in Him. And that, that is momentous, that change. But for us, that's what's going on in our conversion. Our conversion is all those things. It, it is an amazing miracle. No less dramatic, ultimately, than Paul's conversion. And so he's converted here and turned around with this new identity, this new life in Christ, this true and everlasting life that is real life. That, that old way is not life. It's death. Through conversion, we come to Christ. We, we put our faith in Him and His blood shed for us, His death and His resurrection. We turn from our sin and we, we trust Him. And there's new life, death to the old ways. And with that life comes such blessing and such comfort. And the storyline follows the same. Paul's converted and then there's this comfort that comes. It's really amazing. It's really amazing the comfort that God provides to Saul here. Ananias goes to Saul. God actually speaks to Ananias to go to Saul. And Ananias is rightly afraid to go because this is basically Osama bin Laden uh, in your town. And God says, I want you to go pray for Osama bin Laden because he's come to Christ. You're not going to just say, okay. You know, for as an American Christian, you're, you're, you're supposed to go and pray for Osama bin Laden. You're going to be wary. And so Ananias knows who he is. He's weary, but God says, go. And he's been in the room at this place, at the house of Judas on Straight Street in Damascus, a street that's still there to this day. He's, he's there, and he's been praying for three days. And he's experienced this amazing, Saul has, this amazing spiritual roller coaster. I mean, just cannot imagine what it must have been like for Saul to be the chief enemy, the greatest enemy of the church, a dedicated, zealous Pharisee, a true villain and murderer of God's people, to be turned around and now to be a humbled and convinced believer. And, 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 and Saul is there. It's just amazing. I mean, he's just going through so much, I imagine. I mean, he's got, he's got these scales on his eyeballs, too, whatever that is. He can't see. There's scales on his eyeballs. He's just going through amazing things. He hasn't eaten or, or drank anything for three days. He's been crushed beneath 
the rock that is Jesus Christ. He's crushed. He's undone. And Ananias walks in the house, lays his hand on him, and says, Brother Saul. Can you imagine what those two words meant to him? I mean, it's just a throwaway phrase in here, Brother Saul, but it's Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Brother Saul, this is the guy that was coming to, to drag Ananias back to Jerusalem and have him killed. This is, this is the guy that, that had Ananias as an object of his raging fury. This is a guy who, who had considered Christ a curse. And now God comes through Ananias. God sends Ananias to Saul. And the first thing Ananias says is, Brother Saul. What, what amazing comfort from God. And this man did not deserve it in the least. But God says... God says because he had come to Christ and put his faith in Christ and God's great mercy and love for Saul, he had come to Christ and now he was his own. And so it was fitting that Ananias go and say, Brother Saul, and call him brother. How sweet, how sweet those words must have been for Saul at that moment. And how sweet they should be for us to be called brother and sister from a fellow believer, the, the apple of God's eye. His people to call us to brother and sister to be included in Christ. And, he, and Ananias tells Saul that God has sent me. Where are we? Uh, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Saul, not only are you brother Saul, but I'm letting you know that Jesus has sent me to you to pray for you. That God cares for you in His amazing comfort and has sent me to you to bring comfort, to pray for you, to, to pray that you can see again and that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't it amazing what God does for Saul in this short amount of time? I mean, here is this awful man and God confronts him and converts him and then brings this comfort to him. That's amazing comfort. Call brother. And Ananias prays for him, and he regains his sight. Those scales fall off. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's baptized. He's baptized as a sign and seal of his salvation, as his, of his membership in this new covenant in Christ. Not the old covenant, the new covenant in Christ. God comforts him in these ways. And it is amazing. It is amazing if you follow the story. It's, it's shocking. It's perplexing that God would have such mercy and comfort for such an undeserving person. But that is what we receive too, isn't it? Called brothers and sisters. Healed. Though we might suffer in this life sickness, there is a healing we have in the resurrection that is guaranteed. We will be fully healed. We will have new bodies and a new creation forever. We are healed. We are filled with the Spirit. We are baptized into Christ. We belong to Him. All this comfort that we have, and we don't deserve it. And this storyline should cause us to be grateful. Grateful. Grateful for our salvation. Grateful for the comfort that we have in Christ. This wonderful comfort. The same comfort that Paul received, we have. 
He was comforted. Converted, confronted, converted, comforted. And one more key component in the story. And probably for the storyline, the most important component of what God did in Saul's life in these 19 verses. He is commissioned by God. He receives a commission from God. So God gives him a mission to do. He calls Paul to a mission. And Paul's mission is a unique mission. It's a unique mission in history. We, none of us will ever have Paul's unique mission. It is only Paul. And so there are aspects of this story that are unique. We must understand that. We must not think that, well, I, I think I'm actually the second Paul and I'm going to be doing the same thing. No, that's not going to happen. It's unique. But it's also, it's also a template for us, too. It's, it's meant to be understood both ways. And that we, as believers, too, part of our coming to God is, yes, we are, we are confused and we are corrupted, and we are confronted, and we are converted, and we are comforted, but we too are commissioned to be a believer is to be commissioned. Maybe not with the same mission Paul had, but with a similar mission for uh, in John. Uh, John again and again talks about Jesus being the sent one, and then Jesus, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. To be a disciple is to be a sent one. It's to be one sent to image Christ, corporately and individually, to the world to make Him known. And so we all have a mission. None of us are without a mission. And to come to God is not only to experience the wonder of conversion and the comfort, but also to be commissioned as Paul was. And Paul was commissioned uniquely. Uh, It's alluded to in this passage. As God speaks to Ananias, he's a chosen instrument to carry uh, my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. He's, He's chosen to suffer. Uh, as Paul retells the story later, he tells more detail in Acts 26. Actually, Jesus commissions him even in that confrontation on the road. He says, But rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that you, they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Saul is given this commission. God grabs a hold of Saul's life and turns it upside down. He does this U-turn that God does in his life. He's turned from the chief enemy of the church with, with a mission that is his mission, contrary to God, to the chief proponent, a chief proponent of the church with this mission to the Gentiles. And we know the rest of the story as we follow through Acts and the letters that Paul went on this mission, bringing the gospel to the Gentile world, reaching Jews, reaching Gentiles in a profound way, a full life of ministry. Ultimately, we understand historically his life taken under the persecution of Nero, but only after a full and fruitful life only after composing much of the New Testament, only after impacting Europe and the Gentile world in such a significant way that our lives today are affected through His ministry. God commissioned him and used him. He turned his life around. And Acts 9, 1-19 is not so that we might think, what a great guy Paul is. How amazing Paul is. Look at what he did. Look at how he turned over a new leaf 
and decided and figured out this ministry to the Gentiles and went and, and got it done. I want to be like Paul. I want to be a go-getter like Paul. No, that's not what this story is about. Who's the guy that does everything good in this story? It's God. That's right. It's God. God did it. God turned his life around. God is the one who confronted him. God is the one who brought conversion. And as God worked, this change in Saul, ultimately it was God's work. And it was God who sent comfort to Saul. And it was God who commissioned Saul. It is God who did it. And it is God who did it in your life too. It is God. He is the reason that you are in Christ. God is. He's the one who's worked in your life. And so let us, let us remember that. It is God who's done it. It is God who's active. It is God who, it is God who's the one who's confronted us. Not ourselves. God is the one who got a hold of our lives. God is the one who brought about our conversion. God is the one who brought comfort. And God is the one who commissions us too. We have a commission from God. Paul's work is done. He's with the Lord right now, enjoying heaven and looking forward to the finishing of salvation. He's looking forward to the folks at King of Grace doing their part of the mission to bring about the completion of the mission that Christ himself, when it is all done, would return and finish it. And then it will all be done and we will celebrate with Paul in the wonderful grace of God and converting us, changing our lives and commissioning us to his purpose. There's a cloud of witnesses cheering us on as we respond to our part, our commission. Called to worship and walk together and witness through our words and deeds to Christ. Thank God for what he did in Paul's life. Thank God for what he's done in our lives. The bank could come up as we close. Lord, we thank you so much for, for what you did in Paul's life. We are so grateful. We are so grateful. We are so grateful for your transformation of this undeserving man to this man forgiven and commissioned by you. And Lord, we are so grateful for our own conversion, what you've done in our lives. Each of us has a story that's just as wonderful, maybe not as dramatic and unique, but all the components are there, Lord. And each one of us is a trophy of your wonderful grace. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you for this change that is in us. We thank you, God, for confronting us in our corruption and confusion and the conversion. And thank you, Lord, for the comfort that we now receive. And, Lord, we look to live in response to your grace and in anticipation of the future. We look to live according to our commission. May we run hard after you, full of gratitude, full of anticipation, that one day we would be together with our brother Saul, all together celebrating your wonderful grace. We thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As we close in song, just to encourage you to, to think through, take, we'll take a moment maybe just to play. Maybe there's one thing from this section of Scripture God would want to speak to you about. Uh, also, we have our green cards as a way just to think through.